Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Today's guest is Gina Schaefer. Gina is the founder and CEO of a chain of Ace Hardware stores in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Alexandria. She's a passionate entrepreneur who grew her company from one to 13 stores in only 14 years and now leads a multi-million dollar business that employs over 250 people. Many of them are second chance people, which you'll learn about here in a minute. As a former member of the Ace Hardware Corporation Board of Directors, she's dedicated to maintaining a strong corporate culture. Schaefer's biggest passion is for developing urban markets, supporting small businesses, and helping women to succeed in all areas of the hardware industry. She's, li- she's tirelessly focused on the return to Main Street in D.C. and elsewhere and to the shop local movement. Gina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Well, we're really glad to have you. I know a lot of our agents said, I asked, who do you want to have next? And they said, we got to have Gina. So we're excited to, to finally have you on here. Uh, so, you know, as you get into this, so a lot of people think maybe that's not a great place or, or your own story is that, you know, with hardware stores, maybe that's not the right place for women. How did you get into that? And how did you dispel that myth? Well, I, so everything... It's kind of crazy when you get a chance to look back and see how things really get started. But I was in the technology industry and it was the late 90s and I was getting laid off. It felt like all the time I kept joining these startups and somebody would get VC money and I would get a job and then they would start to go out of business and I would start to lose my job. So um, I had moved to this neighborhood called Logan Circle. It's a beautiful neighborhood in Washington, D.C. that had essentially been destroyed by the riots when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the neighborhood was fairly dormant for decades. Nobody wanted to live here. And the beautiful old houses were boarded up. And people started moving into this neighborhood looking for cheaper housing. And I was one of those people. So I moved here. I really wanted to be fiercely urban. I'm a small Midwestern gal and and moved to the big city and ended up in this neighborhood that was nothing like where I came from. Um, And then I got laid off again and again. And so long story short, I put two and two together and I realized there were these beautiful old houses that needed hardware. I wanted to be in a city. I didn't want to have to go to the suburbs to go shopping, which I was doing to go to Home Depot for the house that I had purchased. And I needed a job. And so I decided one day that I was going to be the person to bring hardware to Logan Circle. So that's kind of the quick uh, snippet in time. What grew from there obviously was uh, a chain of 14, we've closed one, so 13 hardware stores. Uh, Ace Hardware is a co-op, and so we joined the co-op. They're our purchasing partner. Um, and it's just been a really fun experience ever since. And what's kind of the first thing, like everybody has their sort of, this is your first store. So obviously it's a big difference between having one store and 13 stores. Yeah. Um, what, was, what were the sort of the biggest challenges with your first store? Well, you know, I could say everything or I could say nothing because I also didn't know what I didn't know. So, you know, we had all of these funny jokes about no one hands you a manual and says, this is how you open a hardware store or this is how you use 25,000 tools and items that you have in your hardware store. So just for an example, I was very good at at, uh, I had had a a boss in the tech tech industry who she could just she could talk anyone into anything. And so I sort of channeled her when I would panic. And I had never actually used a drill. And I was explaining to someone how to use a drill one day, theoretically, right? Because I hadn't, (laughs) but I had to pretend like I knew what I was doing. 
And uh, the customer just didn't quite get it. So I took the drill out of the box. It was a corded drill. I plugged it into the wall and I drilled a hole right into the side of the store. And I was so excited, but I had to be really cool about it because she thought I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> it was <laughs> actually the first time I had ever used a drill. So I think at that point in my life, my business life, so my husband joined me three months after I opened and he became my business partner. Uh, but up until that point, and probably for the year after, I just, I didn't, everything was a new experience, learning how to run the cash register, taking care of customers, hiring employees. Now I read a lot, I mean, sort of downgrading what I knew or learned along the way. Uh, but a, a big part of it was just being willing to seriously smile <laughs> and figure out something new every day. And then you just build on it and build on it. And eventually we realized we were creating the manual to grow an urban hardware chain uh, because it just didn't exist. So what were the questions that people got? Were you getting people who were just brand new trying to fix up the places in that area or were you getting people from surrounding areas as well? Well, so when we opened, Washington's very similar to lots of other cities, meaning neighborhoods are very, act very much like small towns. So when we opened in Logan Circle, the only people coming to see us were really people within about a quarter of a mile. It was people who could walk to the store. They were stopping in with their dogs on their afternoon dog walk, or if they were taking their, their infants for a walk in the stroller. Um, we weren't getting people from very far. So in a way that's helpful because you get to know a more insulated community. And then as we grew, you know, we just piled on another community and another community and we could open within fairly short distances from each other because there wasn't a lot of overlap. Um, a little known secret though, or unknown secret, is that we got a lot of the same questions over and over again. My toilet is running, how do I fix it? I mean, that's the biggest one. You teach someone what a flapper is and how they can save $60 by not having to call a plumber and all of a sudden, you know, you have the best customer for life. Um, how do I hang my 50 pound mirror? My grandmother gave me a piece of old art and I wanna hang it on the wall. How do I not kill this particular plant? So one of our tricks when teaching our new hires how to take care of customers is to start teaching those standard questions that you're going to hear a hundred times a day. And then mm -hmm. you start to add on the more technical questions. So it's kind of a long answer to your question, but um, we hear a lot of the same questions over and over again. And what is it? I know you have some different roles. One, I think it's interesting. You, I believe you were a cashier as a teenager at a, at a hardware store. Yeah, so I um, I think I was 16. That store is actually part of the Ace Co Cooperative now. At the time, they were a true value. Um, but the girls were only allowed to run the cash register. So I think this also sort of points to me not really learning how to, to do a lot, um, home improvement-wise at the time, because I, I just ran the cash register. And at the time, it was manual. So, I mean, I'm dating myself, but it wasn't... <laughs> There was no internet attached to that computer. And so I really didn't learn how to do anything besides key in the, the price tags. Oh, yeah. wow. And then, yeah. but one of your other jobs, I think, was uh, being, I, I had a really cool name, like the Office of Intangibles or something like that, but it was basically making people feel good or making people feel special. Can you tell us about that job and how you applied it to uh, your stores? Yeah, so my, the, my title was Manager of Intangible Assets. And it, essentially I was Julie, the cruise director. <laughs> um, it was my very first tech job. Uh, I moved into a role. I originally was a consultant at that company, and then I moved into an internal role. And my, my position at the time was to really just make the employees want to be at that company. So if you think back to really the rise of the tech boom, the original one, um, people could move to a new company and make more money every single day. And so 
businesses really wanted to keep uh, a hold of the employees they had. And so I planned the parties, I planned trips. Um, I made sure that everybody was just happy working there. The cool thing about that position is that when I then became my own boss, I could take the skills that I had learned there and translate them, meaning not everybody just works for a paycheck. There's a whole lot of other peripheral things that have to happen and work in order to make a, a healthy workplace. And so fortunately that, that tech job, I didn't get laid off from, and I learned a lot that I was then able to translate into business ownership. Why are employees so important? I mean, like, obviously there's the, the, you know, you have to have them to run a business, right. but what do you really pour into employees when you have them? Well, I, I mean, I've, I think I wasn't born with a silver spoon. I think that I, I don't think I know. I want to go to a job for eight hours a day and be happy if I'm there. And so if I feel that way, I want my team to feel that way. And then I want the customers to feel that way, that if they're walking in, they're walking in, you know, almost to your living room or your dining room. How do you want people to be treated? And I've heard so much over the years about people from, from my teammates who have worked in places that were just unhealthy or unhappy, um, enough to know what kind of workplace we don't, we don't want to create. So I can't be, one of the earliest lessons I learned was that I couldn't be in two places at once. And I say I a lot, but clearly it's the whole team that I'm talking about. Um, when we went from one to two, a lot of people said, well, most people fail because they can't be in this part of town and this part of town at the same time. How are you going to handle that? Well, you handle that by creating an atmosphere of trust and by promoting people that you trust and hiring people that you know can live your values or, in our case, help us create what those values are so that you can go to two or three or four more. I mean, we got to the point where we were opening one store a year, which is not a lot. I mean, if you think about big retailers, they're opening dozens or hundreds sometimes, it seems like. Um, but for a little business like hours, it was a big deal. And so we had to groom a team, hire a team, create a team that was going to work with us um, to make that happen. Um, and, and you said it, I mean, you can't run a business without a team. So. And yeah, I know you said you're kind of creating that manual or what are sort of the steps you have for building trust in an organization? Well, sort of at its, at its base is knowing what those values are. So we got to store three and we realized that the, they should be documented. And a lot of companies create core values or sort of standards and they put them on their website and that's where they live. Um, we, we needed them to be living, breathing sentences or phrases, if you will. And so we asked the team to help us put those together. And that team was comprised of a delivery driver and a cashier and a manager and the CFO. I mean, it was a whole host of us that documented what kind of values we wanted to live. And then we made a conscious effort to make sure we were using them in things like the interviewing process. Um, we hire a lot of folks who may have been out of the workforce for a long time. And so saying, tell us about your last job might not be a question in an interview that someone can answer comfortably. But if I say, tell me about a time that you were a good neighbor or tell me about a time that you were helpful, people will smile immediately and they'll think about, you know, grandma next door or the, the guy down the street or something that they did that they can, that they can, you know, share an experience with the person interviewing them. And so we created those values really as the basis of creating the trust so that we could be in a couple places and then infuse them in places throughout a life cycle of an employee, an interview, a counseling session, an employee review, an exit interview, uh, so that, so that they're constantly being used. They can't be forgotten. Now, you're a really big advocate for second chances. So can you tell us what that means for you and how that's affected your hiring process in your business? 
Yeah. So um, when we opened that first location, I have a, a, a fantastic friend. He just opened his own business. I'm so excited for him. Um, he came and asked me for a job and he had just um, started a recovery, re a rehabilitation program, drug rehab program down the street. And he came and asked me for a job. And I said, I, I, I don't need you. <laughs> we laugh about this all the time because, you know, 18 years later, he's one of my favorite people. But at the time I was like, you know, go away. I don't need you. Um, but he kept coming back every day saying, will you hire me? Will you hire me? And I finally did. And um, Shane worked with us for 11 months. He got really mad one day and he left. And I was so new as a business owner and he was so new in recovery that we just couldn't, we couldn't put our heads and hearts together in a way that worked. Um, and we realize now, you know, hindsight's always beautiful, how we could have done things differently. But he left and I didn't think twice about it because I was just busy working and, you know, trying to figure out how to create this manual. And he started telling all of his friends at rehab, they should come see me. I mean, I thought the guy hated me and he was never going to talk to me again. And then, you know, someone showed up and someone else showed up and someone else showed up. And the common thread was Shane. And so I never really put two and two together until years later when one of my teammates said, you know, people call us recovery hardware, which was a really, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a really poignant moment for me because it had never occurred to me. And then if you think about it, Logan Circle was just kind of a shell of its former self when we first opened there. So we helped a neighborhood recover and I'm not taking any of the credit. I'm just saying we were there when people needed to rehab their houses. Um, and then all of a sudden we started finding these folks in recovery who needed a place to a job. You know, nobody at the time wanted to give someone who had been in prison or in jail or in recovery. One of two of my favorite employees lived as homeless men for almost a decade. Nobody oh, wow. was going to give them a job. And so um, we're, we're pretty proud of that. And I don't know how, how else to say it, except that those are the folks that have helped build this business and have taught me what I know. The lessons that I've learned over the years, the moments of empathy that, that I've experienced have really come from a place that most people would be shocked about, I think. So let's say someone is an entrepreneur or a manager and they're intrigued by this idea, but they're a little hesitant to get started with it. What's some advice that you would give them, some, some, some potential pitfalls and some potential rewards from, from uh, you know, looking at people that are coming in from a rehab background or another background? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I get asked this a lot. Um, when we expanded into Baltimore, uh, we took on a business partner who was also in recovery. And immediately the naysayers, how, do you, how could you trust him? Uh, what are you thinking? He's so far away. Um, I would say if you have the foundation laid with the handbook and the the values and the culture and every you're transparent. I mean, we share so much about the numbers and the goals and all of those things so that everyone feels like they're a team. So I would say that transparency has to be there and there has to be, um, there can't be a sense of other, which sounds Maybe that sounds too easy, but I'll give you a, a, a quick story. One of the first employees who stole from us was a young man whose parents owned a small business in the Midwest. And you looked at his resume and he was perfect. Graduate from college, articulate. Um, he was good with sales. On and on and on, he checked the boxes. And we ended up finding out that he had stolen thousands of dollars from us hmm. um, before we knew it because he was stealing product and sending it to his parents so that they could sell it in their business. They didn't know about it. 
Anyway, my immediate lesson was if somebody that perfect could do something wrong, can't anybody. If somebody that perfect could cause a hiccup in our culture, system, process, whatever, couldn't anybody. And so that became the, the prevailing wisdom that you have to judge everyone as a blank slate. Um, we needed to really address stereotypes and figure out how to move on and through them. Um, and that was probably a really good lesson for me to get early on. I mean, I wish it didn't have to happen, but it created so much benefit because it did. Um, it also toughened us up a little bit, to be honest. I mean, at the time, as a new business owner, you think no one's going to do anything like this, right? We're all family. No one's going to steal from us. Um, and so it was eye-opening and very educational. Uh, you know, one of the, your stories that you like to tell is uh, for one of your, I think it was your busiest store is actually run by a drug dealer for a number yeah. of years. Uh, what did you learn from that process? Well, so this is another, I get this question a lot. Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you hire and promote someone to run a store who has been a drug dealer? And when I met, um, when I met him, he was wearing an ankle bracelet. He was on house arrest and the system is so backed up that by the time he had his um, day in court, if you will, he had been on house arrest, house arrest for like two years and he'd been clean for two and a half. He was running my busiest location. Um, I couldn't fathom how society could take somebody like that and then throw them in jail. Mm. Um, and I, I sort of half joked with somebody, which became a basis for one of my speeches, that if you are a drug dealer, you make a very good employee and retail manager. He was good with people. Now, mm -hmm. I'm being stereotypical, but his average customer was probably not like mom next door, right? It wasn't somebody who was very pleasant. Um, he was good with money something you want with every retail employee. He was good with counting it, saving it. He knew how to get it to the bank. He knew how to buy new inventory with it. Um, you could translate that directly back to his previous career. Um, and he was good with odd hours. So his typical customer was not calling him between the hours of nine to five. He had to be on call all the time if he was going to make a sale. And so um, he and I love to joke about how these skills translated to make him an amazing manager. And he did. He, he was fantastic. And how did his background help you heal through a difficult time with that store? Well, so I, I think maybe the story that you're talking about might be the robbery that we had, right? Um, well, I think that he was just very strong in that situation. It, it was the whole team, um, but he was the manager at the time. He wasn't there that day, but the store was held up. It was very, very alarming for all of us, um, obviously, most specifically for the folks that were there. Um, he came in in the afternoon after um, uh, while the police were there to help sort of lift the team up and was just a rock going forward with with getting our, our back on our feet. I mean, having, you know, somebody shoplifts from one of our stores every day and having that kind of stuff happen. I wouldn't say we get used to it, but it's not threatening. But in that experience, we obviously um, very early on had some some trauma and he was he was there and just very solid and mature and able to handle it. How did that story kind of fit into your, the textbook that you're sort of continually writing for your stores? That lesson, I mean, the lesson of a robbery then rolled in. I mean, I can pinpoint points in our history where we added things into our handbook, for example, that we hadn't thought about before. What to do if a shoplifter comes in, what to do when an employee calls out sick, what to do if an employee steals from you. Um, what to do if you're robbed. And so he managed our third location. So we had been open, I guess, 
year three, we, year four, we opened that store. Um, and we were still really getting our feet wet. And so I think that that store and that manager in particular helped build those um, values and build that handbook so that we could then, because it was the fourth location when we went to Baltimore. So at that point we were ready and we felt comfortable enough to leave the city, which is a big deal. You know, geographically it's an hour away. So you're farther and yeah, you can get on the phone with somebody, but you can't just jump in the car and be there in five minutes. So um, it, it, it was a challenge. We wanted to make sure we were ready and, and capable. What made you decide to sort of that, take that leap from DC to Baltimore and Alexandria and, and the other locations? Uh, Baltimore specifically, we had an assistant manager who wanted to move to Baltimore and he had owned several businesses before. He was a uh, super entrepreneurial, um, just great. He's actually living out his favorite life in retirement now on a boat, traveling around the country or the, he's doing what's called the great loop. Anyway, he's, a, he's an inspiration for all of us, but he wanted to move to Baltimore and he called one day and he said, I've owned a business. I'd love to open with a, a new store with you. Would you be interested in Baltimore? And before I knew it, he had researched locations and uh, there weren't maybe two hardware stores in Baltimore. Um, oh, so we didn't have any competition and it seemed like a great opportunity. It's also a lot less expensive to run a business in Baltimore than in DC. So mm -hmm. that was palatable to us. Um, so we moved there. The, of the 14, I think I mentioned that we closed once. So we've had 14 over the years. Um, we've purchased four. All of those came about because the owners were either ready to sell or retire, and they called and said, hey, will you buy my store? So uh, we've done a little bit of both. Um, and those happened, I mean, just sort of fortuitous. Once you grow, we're a bigger target, I guess. People think of us when they want to sell or retire. Um, and so we, we were fortunate enough to be the person, be the group that was called by the guys that wanted to retire and gal, one of them's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, with, with what you're doing with sort of Main Street USA, so what do you see happening, whether it's your store moving in and sort of being an anchor or some other, um, you know, small business owners moving into those areas, what kind of transformation do you see there? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I'd like to take credit for everything that's happened in some of our neighborhoods. <laughs> we won't do that. Um, we're kind of in that weird big little position because we are a co-op. We're not a franchise, meaning we're local, which we appreciate. We're not big like a Home Depot or a big box, but we have a lot of the same stuff. And so um, we find ourselves juggling that middle, trying to make sure that everyone knows we're local, but then also trying to help smaller makers and businesses um, next to us. So for example, if you make something that you want to sell in a, in a business, you can sell it in the hardware store. And so we have makers fairs and bring in our buyers will bring in locally made goods. And so we, we find ourselves being a jumping off point for folks who want to maybe get into a target or into a grocery store that can sell in our business first. Um, I'm a firm believer in main street USA. I think if you uh, tell folks in some of my presentations, you know, close your eyes and think about a main street that has meant a great deal to you. It might be a place you went on vacation. It might be the town you grew up in and then imagine it gone. And I think as, citizens or community members, we all have a little bit of a responsibility to keep that Main Street feel, to keep the, the vibrancy that we all want in our neighborhoods. It makes it safe. It makes it you know, exciting and, and um, brings in tax revenue. And so I try to at least vocalize that when I can so that customers and communities know that we play a really important part. And you're also really successful as a you know woman in business. What advice would you have, whether it's someone in more of a corporate space or as an entrepreneur? What advice would you have for for women thinking about being 
you know, getting into that same area? Well, I, so my one piece of advice feeds into others, but somebody told me years ago that 70% of all businesses never start because of fear. So my first advice is figure out how to get past that fear. Um, you can overanalyze, you can wait forever, you can wait for what you think will be the right moment and then never take that leap. So don't be afraid. And then for women in the hard lines industry, the hardware industry, um, we can run a business just like anyone else. I think what people don't realize is that running any business is boiled down to how do you take care of your customers, your employees, how you take care of the money, um, and how do you market? All businesses need those components, whether you're selling forklifts and power tools or clothing in a boutique or jewelry. Um, so don't be afraid of jumping into an industry or opening a business in an industry that seems like it's historically male or still very male dominated. If you have those components down pat or know how to get there, because I didn't know any of those things when I started, uh, you can run a business. That was going to be my next question. Which of those three were you best at doing? Which, <laughs> which were you worst? None of them. None of them. Oh, <laughs> I, I was definitely worst with the money. Uh, that's for sure. I, finance was never my strong suit. Math was never my strong suit. I make no qualms about that. Um, but I had, I had taken care of employees enough in that previous job. I had done a lot of training so that the HR and marketing stuff came fairly natural to me. Um, the, my inventory manager, who's been with us since almost the very beginning, will joke about the fact that I never want to count the products. I just want to like make them look pretty. I, I'm not embarrassed. I, you have to know, maybe that's the advice. You have to know when you can't do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a lot of what you've talked about, whether it's been a neighborhood or a business or people with recovery is, you know, such an important thing kind of to finish up here. You know, as a country and world, probably as we've been going through a lot of that, trying to recover from really difficult things. What advice would you have? Uh, you know, just as people as we're approaching sort of this recovery phase, um, uh, what advice would you have people for people to do this successfully? Oh gosh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, what we're here for. Give me the. I think yeah. Well, you stumped me. Um, I think it kind of goes back to the advice that I gave myself when we first opened. And that is just to not pretend like you have all the answers. Um, I ask lots of questions every day. I, I ask my team to read a lot every day. What's going on? What are the new best practices? Um, what are we seeing in the industry? What are we seeing in other industries that could, could teach us something? Um, what are people smarter than us saying? I mean, I don't know if this really gets to what you're asking, but I just don't pretend that we have all the answers. And I, I make that very clear with my team. I had a, a buyer years ago who used to say, can't we just stop and think about this for a moment? And I'm like, I, I wouldn't even know what to think about. So let's just go, um, which may not always be the best approach, but just ask a lot of questions and uh, support each other. I mean, as we come out of this, I've gotten uh, more involved with like the shop local movement in DC over the years. And you know, wherever you happen to be, Shopping local, caring about the communities is, is really what's going to keep us going. That actually reminds me of one other thing. You, you were brought in to talk to giant football players uh, about how to <laughs> Can you tell us about that story of you, you uh, telling them what the what's what when supporting the community? That's funny that you know that. So I was in college and my university was one of the first of five in the country to mandate community services graduation, uh, a graduation requirement. So in order to graduate, we had to do 36 hours of community service. And the football team, as great as they were, were notoriously tardy at doing their community service hours. And so 
once a month, the football coach would have me come into the auditorium and, and basically give a lecture on why they should do community service. Well, you know, they're there to play football and everyone else was including them. They were there to learn and get a degree, not to be, you know, feel gooders in the community, which is how people were thinking about it at the time. And so my responsibility was to just talk to them about how great it was going to be. And man, when it worked, it worked. I mean, I have vivid memories of, um, you know, taking football players to dance with elementary school students and serve food at a, at a food pantry. And when it clicked, it was really cool to watch. So I think we've built a lot of service components into our business based on that crazy experience that I had when I was in college. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.